get things started right. Let's open our Bibles and let's turn to 1 John uh, chapter 2 this morning. Uh, we have a special treat, something that I decided to do uh, for you all this morning. I have beautiful slides uh, for us to look at. So if you get tired of seeing my ugly mug, uh, y'all can uh, look at the slides this morning. Um, and I don't know about y'all, but a couple of things before we get started. One, it is sweater weather. Uh, it is cold outside. I'm very excited. Layers. Layers are very important to me, very dear to me, uh, and I'm very excited. And it is a great day to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. There is nowhere else. There is nowhere else I would rather be but to be in the house of the Lord this morning. So um, before we go into our text this morning, a couple of things just to uh, give clarity uh, over. Uh, I, I want to give a definition of identity before we in life. He absolutely lost everything because he reverted back to an old identity. And on one hand, we find Abraham, Lot's uncle, he chose the right identity and became the father of the faithful, while Lot chose the wrong identity and became the father of the enemies of God's people. So this morning is very, very crucial for us to, to unpack what it means to go through an identity crisis. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at 1 John chapter 2, and let's read verses 12 through 14. The Bible says thus, I, being the Apostle John, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So as we turn in this passage this morning, again, we're going to be looking at an encouragement. And these... In these verses, 12 through 14, we're going to look at an encouragement. And then later in this series, we'll, uh, this sermon, we will find uh, an exhortation or a, a warning. But before we dive into this encouragement, let me give you a little bit of context because everything that is written in the Bible, it's not written in a vacuum. Uh, the Apostle John is writing to a church that has got a serious problem to be dealt with. And so uh, the, the Apostle John, he's writing to this letter because the church is in serious danger of an identity crisis. 
They are seriously in danger of an identity crisis. And at the time in the church, there were these, these people, individuals, who would come into the church and they would begin to preach a false gospel, a false teaching, a false message. And what these teachers would do is they would get in their small groups, they would get in their uh, Sunday school classrooms, and they would sit down and they would explain to people that there is a, a hidden knowledge, there is a, a secret informational code, if you will, of things if you obtain it, you will obtain moral perfection. You will, you will find yourself, if you find this, this hidden knowledge, if you go to the, the very back of your Bible to the, to the secret message, which doesn't exist, just by the way. Uh, but these teachers would come in and they would divert everybody's, uh, everybody's eyes away from the cross of Christ. And their eyes would be diverted rather on Christ, but their eyes would become diverted to themselves. And they'd start to puff up their chests and go, I'm pretty good. In fact, I'm so good, I am better than you, and you, and you, and you. And this pride became uh, prevalent in the churches. And so the Apostle John, seeing this problem, understanding what's going on, he writes to the church in order to point the church back to a Christocentric gospel, the cross of Christ and something that's beautiful about John and we had been going through this series through John uh, brother Jeff has eloquently been going through John in these past several months but something that is beautiful about John is is rather than coming to the church writing to the church with a brutal and crass and uncompassionate and harsh voice coming in with the thickest boldest printed Bible he can find and start Bible slapping everybody he comes to the church with a gentle with a compassionate, with a, uh, a tender-hearted encouragement for us to unpack this morning. Some encouragement of our new identity in Christ. Our new identity in Christ. And, and we could spend forever on this passage, and I know y'all don't want to stay here forever, I understand. Um, but we could, we could go through this passage all year long, all, you know, for, forever and ever, but we can condense uh, this passage down into three encouragements that the Apostle John gives to the church then and gives to the church now. And the first one is, we are forgiven. Amen? We are forgiven in Christ. John begins with one of the most simple and basic truths of Christianity, and we find it in verse 12. We have been forgiven of all our sins because of the name of Jesus. We have been forgiven of all of our sins because of the name of Jesus. Not because of my name. Not because of your name, not because of some priest or some pastor's name. We are saved uh, and forgiven of all of our sin because of the name of Jesus. It goes back to the cross of Christ. It goes back to Jesus. And we find this throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament. We find in Colossians 1 verses 13, it says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, we are forgiven in Christ. John begins with one of the most simple and basic truths of Christianity, and we find it in verse 12. We have been forgiven of all our sins because of the name of Jesus. 
We have been forgiven of all of our sins because of the name of Jesus. Not because of my name, not because of your name, not because of some priest or some pastor's name. We are saved uh, and forgiven of all of our sin because of the name of Jesus. It goes back to the cross of Christ. It goes back to Jesus. And we find this throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament. We find in Colossians 1 verses 13, it says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he goes on in chapter 2, he goes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together in him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Our new identity in Jesus Christ is forgiven by the grace of God. I think that deserves a big sigh of relief. This, our new identity is forgiven by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Amen? That should be just a weight off of our shoulders. And let's unpack that just a little bit more. When we say that all sin... All sin means past sin. Mistakes that we have made, failures we have committed, faults that we are guilty of and ashamed of, all of that has been forgiven. Our present sins, the things that we we mess up today, right now, those are forgiven. And guess what? This is even the more unfathomable part. Our future sins are forgiven. Forgiven, And that's hard for us to wrap around because I know I'm, I'm, I just turned 32. I'm an old man. But I know I'm going to screw up a lot tomorrow. And I'm going to screw up the next day. And I'm going to screw up the next day and the next day and the next day. Hope you get the picture. We are forgiven of all of our sins through Jesus Christ. Our new identity is forgiven by the grace of God. So we are forgiven, found in verse 12. And then we find in verse 13 and 14, not only are we forgiven, but we also know the Father. Another part of our our identity in Christ, who we are as Christians, is that we now have and know God as our Father. And John further expounds on this in in chapter 2, verse 23. He says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son as Lord, as Savior, as Redeemer, uh, has the Father also. And the Bible, uh, primarily in the New Testament, expounds on this more and more. And and John says this in his Gospel, but uh, Christians now have access to, to the Father, to God the Father. We can come to Him in prayer. We can fall down on the altar and we can cry out to Him and cry out, Abba, Father, when we need Him. And we always need Him. Always 
need Him. We have access to the Father. It says in Ephesians chapter 2 that, that we can come to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. And in James it says when we draw near to God, near to the Father, God the Father will draw near to us. And here's some things I want you to write down. It's not in your notes. God is a good Father. God is a good Father. Nay, God is a great Father. Even more so, He is a perfect Father. Raise your hand in this room if you have a Father, or you had a Father. Raise your hand. Don't leave me hanging. Everybody has a Father. And I know some of you in this, in this room has had wonderful, fantastic fathers. And I, I hope and pray that everybody, everybody does. But on the other hand, I know some of y'all in this room, including myself, who have had a difficult relationship with their earthly father. And oftentimes, too, we find ourselves looking at our earthly father as the representation of the heavenly father. So if you had a great and wonderful and fantastic father in your life who has who discipled you and taught you about Jesus, and that's awesome and that's incredible, but your father is not perfect. I know, I'm just shattering glass everywhere, but your father is not perfect or was not perfect. He had flaws, he had mistakes. And then some of us too, we look at our, our fathers who we've had really difficult relationships with. Maybe just they're completely broken. Maybe you don't talk to them at all. And we find ourselves thinking, well, if my earthly father treats me this way, what about my heavenly father? God the Father is good. God the Father is great. God the Father is perfect. Don't let your earthly father define who the heavenly father is. And our new identity in Christ is that we know God the Father. Our new identity in Christ means we get to know the heavenly father and he is great, he is good, and he is perfect so we find that our new identity in christ we are forgiven we know the father and then lastly also found in verse 13 through 14 we get to partake in christ's victory we get to partake in christ's victory john says this through 12 through 13 that that you have overcome the evil one little children Fathers, young men, you have overcome the evil one. Our new identity found in Christ means we get to partake, we get to enjoy, we get to benefit in Christ's victory over death, over the grave, over sin. Christians, be encouraged this morning. We get to partake in Christ's victory over these things. And 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, it says this, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And we're going to unpack the world in just a moment. And this victory that overcomes the world is our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? See, in this life, as we follow Christ, as we walk in faith, 
all Satan wants to do is to distract us, condemn us, turn us away from Christ, to demoralize us, to remind us of our moral and our spiritual failures, to discourage us from from following Christ, to tempt us with distractions, addictions, and morality, and just try to catch us in a sinful snare. Remember, we get to partake in Christ's victory. We get to enjoy Christ's victory over sin, over the grave, over death. Christian, be encouraged this morning. We are forgiven. We know the Father. We get to partake in Christ's victory. John is telling us, the Apostle John is telling us, be encouraged. I want everybody to just have a huge sigh of relief. Beautiful. It's the gospel. All of this done because Jesus died on a cross for you and for me. That we get to enjoy this new identity that is not in the world. And something to also note before we move on into verse 15 through 17. Something that the Apostle John does as he's writing this, I said it just earlier, uh, little children, young men, fathers. What, what kind of, what kind of uh, words does he mean when he's, when he's using this to encourage the church body, the body of Christ? Uh, he's telling us that he's referring to all Christians, young and old. There is no hidden knowledge there is no special uh, information that you can gather what what the apostle john is saying everybody who is in the body of christ gets to enjoy this new identity did you come to faith 20 years ago amazing hallelujah praise the lord you get to enjoy that new identity If you came to faith in Jesus Christ this morning, hallelujah, praise the Lord, you get to enjoy the new identity that is in Christ. When when we talk about this new identity in Christ, it's not exclusive. All who come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior gets to enjoy this new identity. There are not echelons of Christian. There are not greater or lesser Christians. We get to all enjoy this new identity in Christ. So he uses little little children, baby Christians. Remember your new identity. Young men, I, I would like to say I'm a young man, but I, am, I don't think I'm no longer a young man. Remember your new identity. Fathers, those who, who have seen a thing or two about a thing or two. Christian, remember your new identity. Do not be led astray. Your new identity in Christ. And so something that John enjoys to do, enjoys doing, the Apostle John, is 
He likes to, to book in things. He likes to um, see two sides of a coin, a, a duality, uh, if you will. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, and so we move from an, an encouragement to an exhortation, to a warning of our old identity in the world. And he encourages us about, of, of who we are in Christ, but then he also warns us of our old identity in the world. So let's begin reading in verse 15 through 17. The Bible says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life or the pride of possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So before we go any further, we need to, to see the stark contrast between God the Father and the world. So how do you define the world? How do you define what is in Greek called cosmos? And you can see it on, on the slides this morning. Cosmos in this text is not defined as God's good creation or the world of, of people from whom Christ died. We find that cosmos, here in the, in the Greek text, the world is defined as a worldview perspective that is controlled by the evil one, Satan. John warns us about the world, as, as John warns us about the world, he isn't just warning us about this big gigantic ball in the sky in the Milky Way galaxy, but rather a worldly system that is opposed to the ways and the will of God. That is this warning that the Apostle John is giving us this morning. We have the encouragement of who we are in Christ but then he gives us a warning. Don't go back. Don't refer back, Christian, to this old identity that we find in the world. And there's a couple of things that he points out in this, this passage. In, in verse 15, we find that we were empty of love. One of the most basic and most simple longings of our hearts is to be loved and to love. Before we got to experience the love of God, Christian, we were stuck trying to love the world and the things of the world. And, and this is heartbreaking, but, but prior to knowing Christ, we, we tried to love the world and then we also tried to convince the world to love us back. To plead with the world to love us back. To feel us to give us purpose, to give us meaning, to give us identity, to give us value, to sustain us, to hold us together. And quite honestly, if you see society, culture in 2022, it's working out really well. And seeing how brokenhearted people are and they're, they're looking for love in all the wrong places. See, our old identity in the world is we are empty of love. And let's break this down just a little bit more of what, what we mean by love. And previously, 
We saw that the, the, we get to know the Father and the Father loves us. And in the Greek, it, we find when it's referring to God's love, to Christ's love, to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit's love, we find in the Greek it's always uh, agape, agape love. In the Old Testament, we find it as kessed love. Kessed love, this is an unconditional Love. Raise your hand in this room if you have children. All right. Do you love your children? Do you love your children? I have a four-year-old, and she is currently covered in poison ivy. (laughs) Covered in poison ivy. She's just like her father. And I love her to pieces. I love her to pieces. And she came in this morning. I was getting ready for the the sermon. She comes in and she's scratching all over. And just the look on her face was so pitiful. (laughs) It just makes you go, oh, you poor little child. But just to look at her and and just to see her this morning, and she's pitiful and her hair is all wild and crazy. And she had the nastiest morning breath. I love that child. With my whole heart. Daryl and my wife, she is expecting in December, uh, we will uh, soon see Theodore James in, just, uh, in December. And when he is born, I will love him no matter what. Just as you love your children no matter what. Just as God the Father loves his children. And that's even greater and more perfect and more good than we could ever possibly imagine. That is the love of God, this agape, this kessed love. And at the same time, there is love. There is love in the world. And humanity has chased it, has, has run towards it, has tried to, to capture it in a bottle, and has tried to hoard it for itself. And this is an eros love. This is a fleeting love. This is a love that, that cannot sustain, cannot hold up, cannot give us meaning and purpose and value. This eros love is romantic, it's sensual, it's, it's intimate love. But this kind of love is broken at best. And we find that in society today. Where people are looking for an eros love and it just leaves them more and more broken. It fades like the wind. It leaves people empty, but it also leaves us longing for a better love. The warning to Christians, don't go back to this. Don't go back to an empty love. Don't go back to a loveless world. But not only that, we were empty of love, but we were also chasing after empty promises. We find this in verse 16. From the days of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, humanity has been chasing after the empty promises of the world. They have been trying to to find fulfillment and satisfaction and we are only left with brokenness and emptiness. And what are these empty promises? Well, the Apostle uh, John provides these, the desires of the flesh. This is an appeal to our appetites Humanity's cravings, lusts, the passions that are bent to fulfill the natural desires that are contrary to God's will. And there's also a point to say there is nothing that can satisfy our sinful flesh. 
You love money. You can't get enough money. You love fancy things. There's fancier things. You love guitars. There's always more guitars. You love power. There's always someone more powerful. You like influence. There's always somebody more influential. You like social status. There's somebody greater than you. If you love beauty, there's always somebody more beautiful than you are, except my wife. My wife is the most beautiful person in the whole wide world. Y'all can all tell her that I told you that. (laughs) But the desires of the flesh, they they are empty promises. They don't sustain. They don't fulfill. They don't give us meaning and purpose. Also, the desires of our eyes, the appeal to our affections, what we like, what we see. The eyes of the body, it says in, in the Bible, the eyes of the, Bible, uh, eyes of the body are the windows to the mind and the soul by which sinful desires enter in. And there is nothing that can make our eyes content. Does anybody in here love to shop? Does everybody in here agree that their wives, men, that their, their, their wives love to shop? It's the most painful thing in the world to go shopping. And my wife, I love my wife dearly, I do, but when she goes to Target, it is the most painful experience in my entire life. We'll go to the clothes section, she'll look at clothes, she'll think about it, she'll ponder, she'll think about it some more, she'll ponder some more. We'll go to the other side of the store, look at other things. We'll go back to the clothes and she'll think and she'll ponder and she'll think and she'll ponder. She'll put it in the shopping cart. We get to the aisle to check out. She'll take it out of the shopping cart, go back to the clothes aisle and to think and to ponder some more. It is the most painful thing. (laughs) But there's nothing that can make our eyes content. There's absolutely nothing that can make our eyes content looking at this world. And then lastly, the pride of life, possessions, what what you got, what you got, what do you have? And not just possessions like material possessions, but like social standing, influence, power, our appeal to our ambitions. This is humanity's way of glorifying self than glorifying God. Glorifying self rather than glorifying God, making what we have an idol rather than falling at the feet of the cross and glorifying the Lord. There is nothing in this world that can make us good enough. There's nothing in this world that can make us good enough. And here's the thing, if you're guilty of one of these things, You're guilty of them all. You can't pick and choose. If you find yourself guilty of one of these things, you are guilty of all of them. So we were empty of love. We were chasing after empty promises. And then verse 17, we were dead in our sinful defeat. Lastly, the old identity of the world finds us dead in our sinful uh, sinful defeat. The world is uh, this evil, this deceptive system of, of Satan. It is passing away and its desires along with it. And as the world is passing away, so too are those who are trying to find meaning and purpose and value in this world. 
And the Apostle Paul, he describes our old identity in the world prior to our new identity in Christ as this. This is found in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, he gets straight to the point. He goes, and you were dead. Dead. Dead in your trespasses and sins which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children not of God, but children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Our old, identi- our old identity does not sound fun, does it? And this is John telling the church back then, and he's telling the church today. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget your new identity that is in Christ. Don't go back to old rags. Don't go back to the filth. Don't go back to the vomit. Follow Christ. Embrace. Remember. Enjoy the new identity that is in Christ. Remember it. Don't go back. Remember how awful it was. Remember how broken you were. Remember how, how, how purposeless and meaningless your life was before you found Christ. This is John's warning, his plead of, of telling Christians, reminding Christians, don't forget who you are. What is your identity this morning? What is your identity? We all go through an identity crisis. We all struggle with our flesh and our bone, our fleshly desires. And A.W. Tozer, very smart man back in the day, something, one of his staple sayings that he would tell his congregation is, we all must choose our world, our identity. We all must choose who we are in this world. And something that we've been going through in our youth group is we've been going through the book of James, and it's been wonderful and fruitful. And a question that keeps coming up as we've been going through the book of James is this simple question. Who are you? Who are you? What's your identity? Are you a Christian? Or are you not a Christian? What's your identity? Is it found in Christ? Or is it found in the world? See, this morning we're going to have a moment of invitation. We're going to rise. We're going to sing a hymn. And as we rise, I want us to to bow our heads. If everybody could stand, uh, I want everybody to bow their heads. And while we sing this song of invitation, I want us to examine our hearts. I want everybody in this room to ask themselves, be really honest, and ask themselves, Who am I? Who am I? What is my identity? Is my identity in Christ? Or is my identity in the world? Who are you? Let's bow our heads. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, 
as we come into this time of invitation. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you move and stir in our hearts. Lord, that we are not deceived. Lord, I pray that you reveal you reveal yourself to us. Lord, if we are a child of God, if we have been redeemed by Christ, may we be reminded and encouraged and also warned of, of not falling back to an old identity. Lord, I pray that as we search our hearts, as we examine our hearts, Lord, that you reveal to those who may have been fooling themselves and, and find themselves, you know what, embracing an old identity in the world. And they do not know you as Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that you move in this place. Lord, that you stir in these hearts who have gathered here today. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we thank you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.